The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 27th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We have yet another entry in the chronicles of Donald Trump, man who has never been photographed with a suit jacket off, yet still is a working class hero. Yesterday, and this quote is about John Kelly, not Trump, but it was about Kelly's appeal to Trump. This was some stuff that Trump likes about Kelly and what makes the former general so darn grounded. It was said by Tom Cotton, as quoted in the New York Times, and it's this. I think he appreciates the struggles of America's working class. The blue-collar workers over the last 30, 40 years, the kind of people who take a shower after they get off work, not before they go to work. Yeah, I can really see Trump, Kelly and Trump going for that idea, wanting a guy in the cabinet who appeals to that kind of person. That's Trump in a nutshell, isn't it? I'm sure when he hired from the Wharton School of Business to start immediately in Trump Tower, he made this requirement known. Don't you shower before work. No, sir. You lather up with the lava soap afterwards like a real American. Sarah Palin knew as much when she endorsed the hero of the great unwashed, who happens to be a germaphobe. As he builds things, he builds big things, things that touch the sky, big infrastructure that puts other people to work. He has spent his life looking up and respecting the hard hats and the still-told boots and the work ethic that you all have within you. The boots, the hats, and the gloves, those mitts, those, those meat hooks that Trump is known for. Michael Grimm, former and aspiring congressman, he did a short prison term, seven months, minimum security, no big deal, told New York Magazine this of his personal interactions with Trump. Quote, I remember saying to myself, I never realized what a large man, I mean stature-wise, he's a big man with massive hands, Grimm said, outstretching his own regular hands above the table. I don't have small hands, but when I shook hands with him, the first time I shook hands with him, I realized he was a big man. He went on to say about how Trump is a, quote, pretty big guy and, quote, not a small man, even for his height, and how his hands were, quote, more like a workman's hands than those of a CEO. That is the picture of the man in the Oval Office I know. Workman hands, steel-toed shoes, showering after work, and not before. Someone has kidnapped Donald Trump. Someone's definitely taken him. Hey, look, so long as the guy that they got in his place has to do the policy stuff and the real guy's allowed to golf, I don't see it being reported to the authorities. On the show today, I spiel about the sentencing of Bo Bergdahl, but first, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker on his plan to legalize marijuana. We as a culture have a weird relationship with marijuana. It's perceived as so acceptable and safe to joke about that a pothead reference will get a knowing laugh from even a conservative audience. I know I have made those jokes while hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But it's also perceived to be so dangerous that simple possession will land you in jail. 
Now, seven states and the District of Columbia have approved recreational marijuana use, and 29 states allow some form, including medical use. And of course, in California, everyone who has a headache and a compliant doctor qualifies for medical use. On a federal level, though, still a Schedule One drug, just like heroin. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey is introducing a bill to decriminalize marijuana federally. In fact, his bill goes beyond that. Let's talk about it. Hello, Senator. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So I know on the campaign trail, Bernie Sanders said he was in favor of delisting it as Schedule 1, and that would have consequences like the DEA wouldn't uh, devote resources to eradication and you could be taxed, but your bill actually legalizes it or would legalize it on the federal level. But what would that actually mean? Well, first and foremost, everyone that you talked about right now that is legally doing marijuana, all of those states, whether it's recreational or medical, is in violation of federal law. And if Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and this is not a wild thing to say, if he decides to go after people who are trafficking in in marijuana, uh, he is fully allowed to do so and could be arresting people who are compliant with state law. So it's crazy that in the United States of America, we still have laws that put folks in jeopardy, but then also cause people problems. You could be in California, you could be a veteran with PTSD, you could go to a federal hospital, VA hospital, and you can't get a treatment that might be the only thing that can help you. Uh, Banks, which rely on interstate commerce and the like, don't want to run afoul of federal law. So So many marijuana distributors have to deal in cash. There are so many complexities that come from it being illegal on the federal level Uh, that this is something that is just way past overdue. Let the federal government get out of this and let people on the state level do things. And the one thing that that, that you're not sort of giving a picture of, because I went to Stanford University and tons of pot use, but nobody got caught. No, there's no problem. But we still have so many thousands of people being churned into the system, and they're disproportionately, for smoking marijuana, and they're disproportionately poor people and people of color. In fact, no difference between blacks and whites for using marijuana, selling marijuana, but if you're African-American in America, you're going to be arrested for it four times. You're four times more likely to be arrested for it. So this is hurting certain communities and, and not others. And so you have poor communities and communities of color, they're getting crushed by this prohibition and the, uh, and the illegality of it all. So in fact, your bill would target the racial disparities in a way, right? It really does. It, it helps people understand that we have to correct the grievous harm we've done in communities all around the country that concentrated enforcement has literally destroyed communities. And you can understand this because if you get caught with a felony conviction, a possession with intent to distribute, you now are not only going to get a a felony charge, but now you can't get a job, can't get business licenses, can't get a Pell Grant. Your economic capacity, even housing, you can't get public housing. It creates such poverty as a result, driving down people's ability to make a living in the United States of America. So my bill doesn't only legalize it. We've got to go farther than that. We've got to, number one, give people a retroactive expungement of their records so that they can actually go out now and get jobs and apply for Pell Grants and the like. And then on top of that, we need to reinvest in these communities that have really been victimized by the war on drugs. So I'm reading from, uh, I think, a press release from your office, and it said the bill would incentivize states through federal funds, which is a nice way of saying punish states that don't comply if their states have disproportionate arrests of low-income individuals or people of color. Now, from the politics of it, I can see senators from states saying, I'm not 
not against uh, what Senator Booker is proposing in terms of marijuana reform. I know it's not that dangerous a drug, but this is getting into how my state does its business and how police forces do their business. And police forces are very powerful politically and can talk to a senator and say, this is why I want you to vote against the bill. I wonder if that jeopardizes the overall bill. The reason why this part is so essential is because most folks forget that in 1994, with that crime bill, we created billions and billions of dollars of incentives to create mass incarceration. Between the time I was in law school, I was in law school in 1994, we were building a new prison with the federal government's help every 10 days in the, in the United States of America. And this not only was a massive investment in states, but it also created those perverse incentives, i.e. punishments for states to put more mandatory minimums in place for these nonviolent drug crimes, overwhelmingly for marijuana crimes when, it looks, when you look at drug arrests. In the state of Florida right now, one out of every five black folks can't vote because of felony disenfranchisement, many of them for doing things two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. And so this is insane to me, and it's a self-inflicted wound that's costing us as a nation so much economic productivity, hurting our children, destroying families, and driving communities to their knees, like the city, inner city that I live in, in Newark, New Jersey. My bill has to be about true justice. Justice isn't just about, hey, let's change the, the, the marijuana laws and the free pot, let everybody go out and buy marijuana. Uh, you know, look... I'm in this because I know that this war on drugs, this prohibition, has been destroying human lives unnecessarily. We're the only nation that does this, and it's got to stop. And we need real justice, which is not just uh, changing the laws going forward. It's dealing with the pain and the hurt uh, and the damage that you've done as a result. Well, maybe the marijuana is a piece of it, but I think there are 185,000 federal prisoners. Your bill is a federal bill. There's 2 million in the state and local level. So whatever this would do in terms of incarceration, a very, very small effect, maybe symbolic, maybe a first step, and maybe justice. But in terms of the incarceration picture as a whole, this wouldn't make a big dent, would it? Oh, my gosh. Remember, the federal level, you're right. 10% of prisoners in the nation. But what the federal government did with things like the 1994 crime bill was incentivize states to change state law. Mm -hmm. And so we were the inspiration or motivation or acceleration behind mass incarceration. Understanding that, we can be the deceleration and in incentivizing people to end mass incarceration because if, as my bill does, provides incentives for states to change state law, it could have a big wide effect. Yeah, just in terms of uh, permission structure and just in terms of what, uh, how to define normalization. But also, this is the trend. Um, no referendum legalizing marijuana was passing for years and years and years. And then they all began passing. And as I was looking at Normal, which is uh, the pro-marijuana interest group, they give senators grades. And I was noticing they don't really correlate to party as much as they do age. I mean, even among, like in Connecticut, right? They, they have Blumenthal and Murphy. Those are the two senators. Blumenthal gets a bad grade from normal. He's 71 years old. And Chris Murphy, who's 44, gets a good grade. And this is consistent. Same thing with the Delaware senators. I just think that uh, demographically, your idea, if not your specific bill, is one whose time has come. It absolutely has. And we know the damage we've done. There, I, I have so many partners 
to the Republicans that know how disastrous the war on drugs are, but there's no urgency to do something about it. And that's why this bill, what I'm hoping it does, that we can, I'm not talking about a decade from now, but maybe even sooner, see a sea change and a flip in American policy and getting us back to some normalcy and sense and sensibility when it comes to grievous money wasted in the criminal justice system that could be reinvested into our communities and tax revenue that's helping cash-strap states and cities actually do things for their children, for public education and more. How's it going to go anywhere in a Mitch McConnell Senate? I, When I came in, Chuck Grassley was on the floor giving speeches against a lot of my criminal justice reform initiatives. And by the, end of my, by the beginning of my second term in the Senate, I spent one year and then I came back for now a full six-year term. But, but as I was going in my second year of this, uh, suddenly Mitch McConnell was with me on a bill fighting to get it passed. I mean, not Mitch McConnell, excuse me, Chuck Grassley. And so what I'm saying is if everybody who believed in, in the bill that I have out there and that two-pronged part of the bill, one is getting the federal government out of the prohibition business and two is invigorating inspiration and incentives for states to have the right kind of uh, marijuana laws and expunging records and the like. If everybody who believed in those things just voted that way or pushed that way or advocated or did one thing a week, uh, whether it's calling somebody in Congress or writing a letter or joining organizations like Normal or whichever advocacy group you like, we would make this change a lot quicker. Uh, it's just too many people are sitting on the sidelines. And I really want to point fingers, which I rarely do, but I'm pointing fingers at some, my own kind of ilk, people that you know are privileged in society who smoke pot and just don't feel like there's any chance of consequences in their lives. They're indulging in that kind of behavior and not being a part of the activist community is hypocritical because there's too many children, too many young people, too many people in my neighborhood, in my community who are suffering for doing the same thing that you're doing. Uh, the civil rights movement moved so fast is because people sitting comfortably home in Iowa watched what was happening in Alabama, got on freedom rides, went down to do sit-in and boycotts. People like Goodman, Cheney, Schwarner, who fought and died together, black and white, Christian and Jewish, because they all understood that when it comes to America, we're all in this together. So don't just sit back and say, hey, this isn't affecting me or I have access to marijuana understand that this is hurting our community. There are grievous wounds. And this is something we've got to do something about. And we need everybody involved. Well, I understand optimism and I admire the call to action. But you realize the specific demographic you're trying to motivate are pot smokers. That's a big ask. Well, I I hate to tell you this. When two of the last three presidents admitted doing drugs harder than pot, when I know in casual conversations in the Congress, many legislators who've done pot themselves this pejorative pot smoker label doesn't fly. So many Americans have, have used marijuana or have no judgment for people that do. It's like saying, oh, those alcohol drinkers, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, so <laughs> we, we, we are a great society, a decent society, a good society, but our criminal justice laws do not reflect the heart of America. And we, and, and we all have got to do something about that. Knowing the rules of the Senate, I mean, is there a chance to even get this bill introduced without a Republican co-sponsor? And if so, I'm going to suggest a coalition of the Corys because Cory Gardner in Colorado, a state with a lot of experience in this, has a very good rating on the issues and he's mostly pro-legalization. Yeah, well, don't think I'm not working on folks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've crafted a great marijuana, a medical marijuana bill with Republicans. So we're, we're, we're moving along. We're making progress. 
And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm believing in, I'm claiming a sea change coming in the future. Okay, my last question is broader than this, but many of the things you said inspire me to ask it, which is you talk about hope, you talk about optimism. I was listening, reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' book and listening to a bunch of interviews, and he's normally asked, are you hopeful for the future? And he says no, and he cites uh, really intractable, horrible statistics like the 20 to 1 racial wealth gap. Now, I'm not going to ask you that. You just told me you were hopeful. But my question is, he's a writer. He's a chronicler of society. You're a politician. Do you think being hopeful is what drove you into politics? Or does being in politics actually make you more hopeful? Well, I, I, I might disagree with your definition of hope. I don't think hope is a feeling or some kind of magical thing that you get. <laughs> you know, hope is work. I still live in the same neighborhood, but uh, no longer in these buildings. I live in some high-rise projects. My tenant president, Ms. Virginia Jones, I found out that her, her child died in the 1980s in, in the lobby of the building I live, was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't understand why she still lived there. When I, when I first was getting to know her, I'm like, you and I are two of the highest net worth earners in this building. Why are you still choosing to live here? And she joked with me, and she said, because I'm in charge of Homeland Security. You know, this was a woman that took a responsibility for the world around her. And even if she wasn't going to be able to make a world of change, she could change people's worlds. And she taught me that hope is not a feeling. It is a conviction. It is work. It is sweat. It is making sure that despair never has the last word. And so I still have to say, I've only been four years in the Senate, but 20 years living in Newark, New Jersey. And there are things that people would have laughed at me about if I had told them that we were going to achieve these things for our, for our city. It was Frederick Douglass that said, I prayed for years for my freedom, uh, and I was still a slave. It wasn't until I started praying with my hands and praying with my feet that I found my salvation. So I'm, I may be a senator, but I still am a guy that lives, works in an inner city community, the median income of my community, where I, my neighborhood is like $14,000 per household, and my community, who has every reason to believe that so many of the promises of America, things like liberty and justice for all, are lies. I live in a community of some of the greatest patriots I've ever met in my life who haven't given, given up on the promise of America, but don't just sit back and wait for it to be real. They get out there and work for it. They are agents of hope, and that's what we have to be. I'm not a Pollyannish, optimistic guy. I get up every morning and say that I am going to be hope to somebody today. All right, let's do it again. Let's talk about single-payer next time, okay? All right, all right. Senator Cory Booker, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Bo Bergdahl, the army sergeant who was exchanged for five Gitmo prisoners, is to be sentenced by a military tribunal soon. Bergdahl surprised his lawyers, according to reports, by pleading guilty to both the charges he faced. In the media, Bergdahl's lawyers clearly had been trying to lay down a defense, arguing essentially that he couldn't get a fair trial or that his time held by the Taliban should be considered when adjudicating guilt that was obviated by Bergdahl just pleading guilty. The military court judge, Army Colonel Jeffrey Nance, could give Bergdahl a sentence that ranges from no prison time to life in prison. A major consideration has been what harm came to the members of Bergdahl's platoon and other platoons as they searched for him. 
As the podcast serial ably documented, Bergdahl walked off and what his motivations were remain murky, though I think they're fairly irrelevant. The kindest reading is that he was naive. He thought it was the best way to warn others about the abuses of a superior, but it wasn't the best way. And he wasn't allowed to pursue that way. And the arguments that anyone in the chain of command was being abusive, those arguments are really uncompelling if you look at them. Bergdahl put his fellow soldiers in harm's way. And after news of the prisoner exchange was made public, several soldiers went public themselves to blast Bergdahl. Chief among them was his sergeant, Matt Verkant. Here he was on Fox News last December. Well, I think uh, everyone in the military and um, everyone I know knows that people are seriously hurt and killed because of Bergdahl's actions. Now, you heard Verkant saying that everyone he knows knew Bergdahl's actions caused deaths. But that is the only time I found that Virkan, who's done a lot of interviews and in fact has his own podcast, actually went that far. You'll see claims that Bergdahl's desertion or walk off or whatever you want to call it, he pled guilty to desertion, led to the deaths of six soldiers. But the places you'll hear that are Newsmax or right wing blogs or Twitter feeds, provenance unknown. Time magazine did run a headline titled The Six Soldiers Who Died Searching for Bo Bergdahl. But the reporting of that piece only says that Bergdahl's former platoon mates say six soldiers died. And the army said the evidence linking them directly to Bergdahl doesn't exist. That's why most good news organizations headline the same set of facts, not with an answer, but with a question like, did six soldiers really die looking for Bergdahl? Newsweek, how did six soldiers die after Bo Bergdahl's disappearance? CNN, can Bo Bergdahl be tied to six lost lives? New York Times. The podcast serial found the records from the forms, they're called 156s, which documented how the soldiers died. And in each case, the soldiers who are said to have died looking for Bergdahl were sent into the field with other missions in mind. They were looking for a high value target or they were trying to kill or capture anti-Afghan forces uh, while doing so one stepped on an uncleared pressure plate IED. But let's check back right now with Sergeant Vierkant. He has his own podcast, as I said. It's called Average American. There are six episodes out. Uh, five are from topics that might interest an Army veteran. He talked to a physical therapist. He talked about veterans affairs. He talked to a, and interviewed a black belt instructor. But episode one is a deep dive on all things Bergdahl. And unlike that one time on Fox when Vierkant asserted that everyone knows that Bergdahl caused deaths, here on the podcast, at his own pace, on his own show, he makes his case more carefully. Listen to what he says. When we were talking about people getting killed because of Bergdahl, I don't know exactly what everyone's missions were specifically, whether they were looking for him directly or not. He still plays a huge part in uh, their deaths because of the atmosphere at that time and of the atmosphere of our engagements and uh, the enemy um, conflicts that were just skyrocketing through the roof. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, so easy for them to come and find where we're at mm -hmm. and to emplace IEDs and ambush us and try to kill us. Verkant's point is that the enemy knew the general area where the army was looking. And this made soldiers easier targets. Six were killed. Would they have been killed otherwise? Vierkant, in other interviews, other than the one I played, never really definitively says yes. Here he is with Bill O'Reilly. Did anybody get hurt looking for him? 
Uh, directly, not anyone uh, in my platoon was hurt as a result of him leaving. I do believe that people's lives were put at risk. People died directly because he did walk away and chose to walk away. Uh, ambushes went up exponentially. Uh, IEDs, there are a lot more IEDs. We got hit by a lot more IEDs and it became very intense. Everybody was put in a so dire you, situation. Well, but that's pre that's pretty whole, strong. The whole region. Right now, no one knows the answer to the question, did Bergdahl get anyone killed? But as Veerkant notes on his podcast, the army doesn't seem terribly curious to get to the answer. Why don't we investigate it? Why, why would we not want to look into why people died because of this motherfucker who walked off for no good fucking reason? Now, even with the question mark lingering over the deaths, there are injuries. Definitely injuries, grievous injuries directly linked to Bergdahl. In Veerkant's O'Reilly appearance, the then Fox host said this. And they're not saying that those who searched for Bergdahl were hurt or killed. Wrong. The Army did present several soldiers who were badly wounded searching for Bergdahl at a sentencing hearing. It was Chief Petty Officer James Hatch, whose leg was hit by AK-47 fire. He had 18 surgeries on that leg. The military dog that he trained was killed by enemy fighters in the mission. There was Specialist Jonathan Morita, whose hand and elbow were hit by two rocket-propelled grenades. He still can't hold a fork with that hand. There's Sergeant First Class Mark Allen, who was shot through the head. The bullet entered and exited his temples. He uses a wheelchair. He cannot speak today. He's scheduled to testify through communications relayed by his wife on Monday. So in trying to figure out in my own mind what would equal justice for Bo Bergdahl, I took into account his five years of capture and torture at the hands of the Taliban. I also considered the soldiers wounded and those whose deaths may have been hastened by his actions. And then I thought about drunk driving. I looked up cases where the drunk driver himself or herself was terribly injured, perhaps comatose, but then charged upon recovering from injury. And that happens. That happens a lot. So there you have an irresponsible act, which wasn't intended to harm another, but did. Such was the nature of the irresponsibility of the act. And the actor himself suffered greatly because of the act, but the prosecutor still wanted justice. So what is justice for Bo Bergdahl? As I said, he faces up to life in prison. And as I've also said, he may have caused lives. He certainly greatly affected them. I will not say that no sentence is too harsh. President Trump has famously mused about dropping Bergdahl out of an airplane. But I will say that no matter what sentence the military court issues, my immediate sympathies will not center on Bo Bergdahl. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Dan Schrader. He's the kind of guy not only to shower before work and after work, but during work while singing Hamilton. Mary Wilson, just producer, noted the one time she met Donald Trump, just curiously, he was very open with his tax returns. Just happened to have them on hand. It's like, hi, Mary. Want to look at my tax returns? It's the thing I do. I show people my tax returns. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is most comfortable with hard hats, and steel-toed boots, but also welder's masks and an acetylene torch, just setting everything on fire. That guy's a real man, that Steve Lichtai. Constantly melting equipment and combining two bits of metal that didn't ask to be combined because America. The gist, we're the kind of guy that doesn't keep any fancy lad handkerchief around to blow our noses. No, we use a burlap sack. And it's the same burlap sack our daddy used 
and his daddy before him. They both died of mucus-related illness, but they were buried in their steel-toed boots and their hard hats. It was an open casket to accommodate the hard hats. And I never knew my pappy or my grandpappy. I didn't know him that well, but I trusted them on the big issues, like navigating the complicated relationship between the Kurds and the Iraqis, and whether China was manipulating currency, because they had a wisdom, a wisdom greater than you could buy in your fancy pants schools, or even your least fancy of burlap sack dealers. Oomperu deperu deperu, and thanks for listening. My friends were in Vegas, and they came across you. No, you really? Said, yeah, you said, what, what do you do? Tell me. Maybe they lied about this. What are you doing here? And they said, oh, we're here. To, I'm having a wedding. And you offered to do the ceremony. And they said, well, it is a Jewish wedding. And you said, I know how to do that. That is actually a true story. <laughs> and, uh, but I've definitely been under a chuppah marrying people before. Yeah, <laughs> so it's true.